This podcast series is not meant for retail investors, but instead is meant for financial advice and investment professionals. Please refer to IMAP's website, imap.asn.au, for more details. Okay, well, welcome to this podcast in the IMAP Independent Thought Series. Today, I'm joined by Charles Hamme from Clearbridge and Greg Pease from Evidentia to discuss infrastructure investing in volatile markets. Charles is Managing Director of Clearbridge Investments and Portfolio Manager for their Global Infrastructure Funds, and Greg is Head of Asset Consulting with Evidentia Group. Charles, maybe we can start with you briefly, if you could just set out the background to infrastructure for it as, as an asset class and what sort of sectors, subsectors you look at and, and what you see as the main drivers. Thanks, David. To give you context, infrastructure for us is an asset class where the company essentially owns an essential service and essentially gets paid to make that service available. Think about toll roads, airports, think about the transmission of electricity, distribution of electricity, gas and water. So these companies are often regulated or they operate on the concession agreements. And within both those frameworks, there's a, a return that is earned um, through the asset's life. And essentially, the asset owner gets paid, as I said, to make the asset available. And various, various things are passed through, inflation, interest rates, various operating costs, which means there's a very high resilience of outcome. Again, because they're essential services, they're quite inelastic to economic outcomes. You know, whether you have a job or not, whether we're in a recession or not, these assets still get used. So the diversification benefits at the portfolio level uh, are immediate as well. Importantly, because of our resilience of cash flow and that predictability of cash flow, you have an asset class where you can consistently achieve a high dividend and a dividend that historically has grown well above inflation. Now, for us, the sweet spot of, our, of that asset class is the regulated utilities, so the classic poles and wires businesses, and the user pays assets, the airports, the toll roads, and the port assets. We avoid businesses where there's volume risk or commodity risk. Essentially, any businesses that makes it hard to achieve a, you know, a predictable outcome through a cycle. Thanks, Charles. And I guess you know, one of the important things impacting all asset classes and investments at the moment is the macro background. But maybe before we touch on that, can, Greg, can I just ask you, where do you see infrastructure fitting in client portfolios? Do you see it as an income-producing defensive asset, as Charles has described? Yeah, we do, um, David. We 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 view it as a role in a in a multi-asset in a diversified portfolio, uh, but we also use infrastructure a lot more, and we'll use it in a. Uh, in a, in a higher weighting for portfolios that we create that actually do have an income focus. So it depends on, you know, it depends on the, the type of portfolio that we build, but we use it both within a diversified and we actually use it for those income characteristics. Uh, now, I, I, you know, I did mention the, the macro, obviously the focus in the last year or so has been on inflation and very rapidly rising rates across the world. So, Maybe, uh, Charles, do you want to talk a little bit about how your team sees the world at the moment in terms of the outlook for growth, inflation, et cetera, but then 
Perhaps the two of you can chat a little bit about how that's going to impact infrastructure in particular. Of course, our current view is that we are definitely entering a period where we have seen the peak in interest rates and the peak in inflation, and certainly a period where we will see softer economic growth. I think the nuance around whether we enter a recession, a soft landing or a hard landing isn't as important as you know the path of where economic growth will ultimately go. Now, as it relates to, to, to interest rates, certainly to the peak of real interest rates, and inflation for us is a one area where whilst we do think we've seen the peak and we can see a path towards rapidly decelerating inflation, we do think it's going to be quite difficult for central banks and governments around the world to manage that last mile of inflation, to bring inflation back to within you know, the target that's you know, historically about 2 to 3% range, which has been the historic target. Um, that said, we're certainly you know, in an environment where we've seen the ceiling of, of interest rates and inflation and, 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 and softer growth. And it's a really good environment for the asset class. That's a really good environment for the asset class. You have a, you know, an, an economy which is a bit challenged and challenged globally, and that's going to bring to the fore the real resilience of, of, of the asset class in terms of you know, the cash flows and strong earnings growth, in particular the utilities. The inflation pass-through remains very, very important because of that you know, stubbornly high inflation. That said, it's moderating. And the peak in real rates is important as well. Because a lot of the duration businesses in our universe, the toll roads, the airports, which have really suffered, you know, the last year because of you know rising rates, um, will just do better going forward as as that duration or that rate impact starts starts to wear off. So you know we're very comfortable with the macro environment that we're currently in. Um, where we could get a surprise is if real rates start to rise again, if inflation. You know, if it's like a false dawn as it relates to inflation and inflation starts to get, you know, sticky again, starts to rise, that's certainly not our base case. And there was certainly, um, we, you know, we've seen a, a lot of assets move in, quite become strongly correlated in the last 12, 18 months. You know, bonds and equities have moved together for the first time in, in ages. How, how do you see infrastructure moving with, with bond deals? Is, is there a correlation there? Surprisingly, there isn't a, a long-term correlation or a very strong long-term correlation, which I know it goes against conventional wisdom. In the near term, certainly, because the the asset, the, the, the defensiveness and the, you know, the income generating characteristics of the asset class, you know, uh, are deemed as like a bomb proxy in a way. As rates start to rise, then you know the attractiveness of the dividend yield in certain utilities becomes, you know, less attractive relative to to you know to other other asset classes, and you get more of an immediate impact on the share price. But that typically, as we've seen in the past, really does wash out over the next 6, 12, 18 months. And that's what we're seeing now. And, you know, as it relates to inflation, you know, the inflation pass-through really provides a a very unique hedge for the asset class. You know, one which is enshrined in the pricing mechanism, you know, the market structure and the demand volatility. And again, we don't really necessarily worry too much about where inflation is because of that hedge you know, characteristic. Now, clearly, within you know the the macro environment, um, different sectors will perform you know a bit more nuanced depending on where we are in, in the environment. If you have an environment where you have you know recession and low inflation, then obviously utilities, the more defensive utilities, really really shine through, and some of the user pays assets will probably more likely disappoint. If you have an environment where you you know have high growth and high inflation, and with bond yields much higher. You know, where we've been 
where we've come from. Certainly, that environment utilities are a bit more challenged. Um, but infrastructure assets, user pays assets, will do quite well as they've done recently. And if you have an environment where you know it's somewhere in between, not necessarily stagflation, where you have low growth, high inflation, but you know low growth, moderating inflation, then even within that sort of macro environment, it's a bit more nuanced. So you know, UK and European utilities will do probably better than US utilities. Infrastructure will be a bit mixed. Um, but negative real yields, which is where we think we are now moderating or inflecting real yields, um, will really support the asset class more generally. So it's a bit more nuanced than, than sort of a blanket, interest rates going up, interest rates going down, inflation going up, inflation going down. Right. right. And uh, are there any lingering effects from, from COVID that you see, Charles? You know, things like toll roads, airports, are they sort of back to where they were or getting there or...? There, you know, across our portfolio and across our universe, um, most toros and airports are pretty much back to pre-COVID levels. I mean, I suppose the one surprise is how quickly airports, um, airport traffic got back to pre-COVID levels, not necessarily toll roads. I think toll roads are always, you know, would always be so much, much more resilient as it relates to user pays assets. Um, so we aren't re- really seeing any of, of those negative effects. You know, we're certainly well and truly back to, pre-COVID in many parts of our, our universe. Some assets still not, but generally, um, yeah, it's a case of what's COVID for a lot of these assets. <laughs> That's good. That's encouraging, yeah. Uh, now, uh, Greg, I know you just, you'd mentioned uh, concerns about yield and uh, Charles has talked about the, the, the sort of steady income. Is that something that you, you see... It is steady. Is there a threat out there to the yields that you've been getting from these assets or are your income targets unchanged? From us, yeah. I mean, one of the big attractiveness of of global infrastructure for us, um, if we're ever building an income uh, income portfolio, is, you know, traditionally a lot of advisors have built out that income portfolio where clients can live off the yield. So investing is about deploying the capital in assets and living off the yield. The big challenge for us in an Australian environment typically is how do we get more diversification to a portfolio? Because traditionally, advisors that have run that style of portfolio are overweight the banks and, and overweight resources that are paying really good dividend yields out. So, And, and the reality is you just can't get or, or you it's really hard to get the level of uh, income and yield out of global equities. So we really like um, global infrastructure for, from that profile. Uh, we're really comfortable with the, the, the growth and the resilience of the, of the income at the current levels. Um, probably, yeah, it's one for Charles. You know, one of the questions we get a lot is around dividend growth. So just the growth of that dividend. Um, we, we are happy with where it's at, but as, as far as the growth, do you have any comments on that? Of course, Greg. It's it's interesting that when we build our portfolios, we're always thinking about the likely range of outcomes around every metric, whether it be an operating, you know, metric, uh, our valuation, you know, metrics of the nominal internal rate of return or the excess return, and dividends also falls to that category. And so, for every company, we're running the scenarios: what operating scenarios, what macro scenarios can possibly impact the dividend, and more importantly, the dividend growth, because we know that's very important. And one of the real attractiveness, uh, attractive features of the sector is the over the last 10 years, the dividend growth has been well above 
the average inflation. What drives that dividend growth is the asset-based growth and how that asset-based growth flows up into you know, normal equity in the form of capital and, and dividends. So as it relates to the asset-based growth, we're certainly entering a period of what we would call heightened asset-based growth. And a lot of that has to do with not only you know, staying business regular asset-based growth, but also net zero and decarbonization. And what that means for the for deployment of capital to deal with you know, the variability of renewable energy, transmissioning, transmission and distribution, hardening, et cetera, et cetera. So we're very confident that if anything, whilst currently where you know where we have like a five percent dividend with about a five percent dividend growth, um, you know that range of outcomes in our view could be possibly skewed to the upside as it relates to growth, just because of the strength we're seeing at the moment at the company level, and that strength which will be sustained for many many years, driven in part by what we're seeing more structurally in terms of asset based growth. Charles, can you? maybe touch on sort of where you're seeing the opportunities. We've talked a little bit about the subsectors and maybe also the geographies, you know, which are the particular parts of the world we're finding more attractive at the moment. Now, I suppose let's frame that question in the context of the more structural opportunities and what thematics we think are, are touching the portfolio. And then I'll probably drill down, I will drill down into the more, you know, sector and geographic opportunities. Now, I, I Interestingly, well, you know, I've been involved in this sector, in this asset class now for over 20 years. And I can honestly say that the opportunities we're seeing now are probably as exciting as they've ever been. And if you think about the thematic opportunities or the thematic drivers that are touching our portfolio, think about decarbonization and net zero. I spoke about this earlier, but to stress to the listeners, there's no sector that is more at the forefront on achieving that policy goal than infrastructure and utilities. A lot of that capex required to achieve net zero will be driven by large-scale utilities, and a lot of those companies are listed. So everyone on this call listening um, is really benefiting from that thematic. And we're seeing it now across every company, whether it be U.S. utilities, European utilities, um, whether it be you know toll roads, airports. We're seeing that you know that capex being deployed to meet those policy goals. Another interesting theme is the onshoring or the fracturing of global economies. Obviously, COVID really pulled forward a lot of that. You know, countries around the world are trying to take ownership of their supply chains now. North America, or the US in particular, is really right at the forefront of that. Europe is responding. The rest of the world will as well. What that means for localised energy energy needs, localised you know, infrastructure needs, supply chains, et cetera, again, very exciting. Many of the companies in our portfolio, and particularly in North America, are really responding to that, you know, working hand-in-hand with local stakeholders, companies to facilitate the onshoring of manufacturing industry, etc. Another, you know, uh, thematic is, you know, digitization and the way we communicate, you know, with each other and how to facilitate that. Listed tower companies are right at the forefront of that, you know, telecommunication companies placing equipment on the towers that these companies own or designed to facilitate the transfer of data and improve the way you know we communicate. So within within the context of that, you know, there's certainly many opportunities at the moment. You know, we think that certainly in North American utilities, which were somewhat challenged last year, you know, that asset-based growth story, it's you know, North American utilities, which are really right at the forefront of, of net zero and decarbonization, where you can see a real impact on their asset-based growth. They're still achieving very, very attractive allowed returns, you know, 10% plus nominal return on equities, and that's going to really sustain 
for a very long period of time, you know, company reported ROEs and ultimately total returns, dividends, dividend growth that shareholders will see. At the same time, more selectively, we're starting to see some opportunities in, in, in you know, user pays assets globally, in particular the airports. Um, certainly the first part of the year, we saw a big run up in airports. They've sort of come back a bit now. Um, and we sort of see, you know, the resumption of travel and how that fits in to, you know, passenger mix and the various airports around the world, how they'll respond to that. Um, we're getting a bit more excited about the valuation story there. And then, you know, within that, there's always these idiosyncratic opportunities, you know, companies where we're just able to apply our infrastructure lens and price the risk a bit differently, price the opportunities a bit differently, whether it be, you know, Southern in North America, whether it be Iberdrola or EDP, you know, in Europe, companies that, you know, are a bit differentiated, but certainly not to us. And when we look at these companies, we certainly see, you know, ample opportunity for for really meaningful long-term, long-term growth. So there's a, a lot of opportunity at the moment, um, David, um, an opportunity which is, you know, anchored in a lot of the structural drivers we see, but at the same time, which is, you know, driven by really strong and compelling valuations and really st- strong idiosyncratic drivers of a stock level across our universe. Thanks, Charles. Yeah. Um, one other topic I think might be interesting that both of you might have comments on is the differences between listed and unlisted infrastructure and, and also from a valuation point of view. I mean, it's, you know, there's been comment lately about valuations of unlisted assets perhaps not being as up-to-date as they should be. From our point of view, we we only deal with uh, listed infrastructure. So um, most of the portfolios that we run are under a, a managed account structure, like an SMA structure. And so typically the RE requires us to have, you know, 80% liquidity uh, within 20 business days under the kind of scheme. So we only really deal in the, in the listed infrastructure space. Having said that, we do, uh, you know, whenever mm-hmm. we're looking at, I would say both property and infrastructure, one of the things we're also looking at is is how it's trading versus, you know, net tangible assets and the underlying assets and how that how that um, private market um, uh, exposure is trading as well. So we do look at that, but, yeah, all of our exposures through listed infrastructure, we're, we're, we're happy with that. But certainly, David, um, you know, as an infrastructure investor, you know, certainly there's been, as you suggested, a lot of noise, a lot of, you know, discussion recently about some of the valuation differences we're seeing in listed and unlisted. And, you know, sometimes you have, well, certainly the same asset class, sometimes the same regulator, very similar capital structures, yet a a persistently stubborn valuation gap between quite high transaction multiples in unlisted and, you know, much fairer trading multiples in listed. And that's something which we've seen now for five years. Certainly wasn't the case when I was, running unlisted money over 15 years ago. You know, back then, there was a very, uh, both transaction multiples and listed multiples were very close. Now the gap can be up to 40% in some sectors. And we think it's just a function of the huge amount of money that's been raised. You know, over $300 billion has been raised in direct, you know, infrastructure over the last five years. And that needs to find the home. And high quality core infrastructure assets, you know, there's really high quality toll roads, there's really high quality, you know, regulated utilities, just don't really exist outside of the listed landscape. So when they do come to market, there's really extreme competition. And so the ability of direct to get a cheap asset is almost zero because of that really intense competition. 
But what he means for listed is really important. You know, what we've seen is really three things happen over the last, you know, three to five years as a result of this really persistent valuation gap. You know, one is unlisted companies have just taken over listed companies. And we've seen that in Australia, we've seen the airports, you know, Spark, Osnet, um, you know, a, a false start with ALX, but we'll see how that plays out. And a few others globally. Two, we've seen many listed companies start to sell off non-core parts of their business to unlisted investors. They're seeing these valuations. They're saying, hey, we have this, we have this asset. It's not core to us. Right. They're able to sell it at a very attractive valuation, then reinvest those proceeds into their core business. That really strengthens, you know, not only the company-specific, you know, cash flow, dividend dividend growth story, but also the universe. It's making a much higher quality as they sort of really sell these non-core assets. But thirdly, it's an interesting time because if you're ambivalent to how you want to hold the sector, um, whether it's listed or, or, or unlisted, and your time horizon is more than a day, and you sort of have a you do have a long term you do have a longer term time horizon, then we think right now it's quite a unique opportunity for a listed infrastructure investor. We certainly think that you know buying the asset class now as a listed investor and holding it by virtue of your lower entry price, it should earn a higher return than you know an unlisted um, unlisted counterpart. History has shown, David, that through the passage of time, the return outcomes between both listed and unlisted are very very similar. Obviously, you have beta in the listed or, or higher beta in the listed market and volatility. But for us, that's a good thing because what that means is that we can buy a bit better, sell a bit better, and add a layer of return over what we would consider a typical infrastructure return just by being active managers with our own universe, et cetera. So you know, that's where we think we are right now in the cycle. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, Charles. I mean, you would imagine the same asset should deliver the same returns over 10, 20 years, no matter how it's it's held. And that's been the case as well. The, number, the numbers clearly, you know, bear that out. Maybe one, briefly, one last topic. I was intrigued in, Charles, you mentioned about, you know, the move to net zero and how some of these sectors are, are leaders in, in achieving that. And I know, you know, there's a lot of focus on ESG and climate change and so on, investment portfolios. But in one of our conferences recently, we actually had a, a session with is net zero a new asset class? And you're sort of raising that here that, you know, you're not just not buying things that harm the climate, but you're actually buying things that are doing the right thing and heading us in the right direction. Certainly. And we've been a, a signatory to the UN PRI since 2008, and the sector itself has a very high threshold as it relates to ESG. Think about every time an asset's built, the, the environmental requirements, the social license to operate, you know, the disclosure requirements. So it's already a high threshold. You know, but in our process, it's key and it's been key for, over, for a very long time. And for us, it's always been about two things. One is obviously understanding the risks and being able to price them. But equally as important is understanding the opportunity and being able to price that and, 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 and investors benefiting from that. And it's important, as I made the point earlier, that the asset class is really unique because it's an essential service. So it plays a pivotal role in society. And whether we achieve net zero or not, it's an asset class which is here to stay. You know, we'll always need water, electricity, gas, airports, toll roads. So it's about managing the asset class, spending the required, you know, the required CapEx, 
which really plays its role in achieving net zero. And you made the point earlier about what does that mean? You know, electrifying the grid is probably the only way we can get close to achieving well, net zero. And that means, you know, renewable energy spend. It means, you know, EV charging stations. It means you know, strengthening transmission and distribution lines to deal with the variability of renewable energy. It means, you know, utility scale, battery technology, hydrogen technology. All that is occurring in listed companies. The capex required, the renewable energy companies that are spending the money, all those are listed and growing their asset bases and, you know, growing their generation mix. The transmission and distribution lines, all those companies are listed. A lot of the hydrogen, you know, the piloting of hydrogen projects, all the technology around hydrogen is occurring in listed companies, you know, in SNAM, Enegas, in APA in Australia. So the sector plays a very, very uh, pivotal role and will continue to do so for many, many years. Even gas as an asset, you know, the role gas plays as a transition fuel to we can, um, you know, safely move away to, to primarily re- renewable energy, nuclear energy as well. So there's many parts of the net zero decarbonisation thematic um, and ecosystem which directly are impacted and influenced by what our companies, what the list of companies that we're investing in are doing. Greg, is, is ESG generally a topic that's become more and more at the front of your clients' minds? Is it something they, they want to focus on a lot more now? Yeah, I think the answer is yes. Um, definitely, I think ESG comes up with with every single client. Um, however, rather than uh, how ESG typically is playing out within a portfolio series for like a private wealth firm is um, we tend to be building out an ESG policy for that firm. And, and what I'm seeing with ESG policies is we might have a call it a light ESG policy over there, a lot of their, their normal portfolios, and then they'll build out like an impact or a, or a heavier ESG portfolio that they'll actually call a sustainable portfolios. So we are seeing um, the impact of ESG, but we're probably seeing um, that at a, at a policy level, at a, at a portfolio level, and then those firms specifically selecting uh, you know, e- e- ESG um, strategies for those portfolios. Okay. Well, look, um, that's been a great discussion, gents. Um, I think we've, we've used up a lot of our time and covered some, some really good issues there. So it just remains for me to thank Charles Hamey of Clearbridge and Greg Pease of Evidentia for joining us today and giving us more insight into the role of global infrastructure in portfolios. And finally, a reminder that the annual IMAP awards are now open for entries. And this year, as well as the usual categories such as multi-asset, ESG, small companies, we've introduced a new category for boutique licensees to give an opportunity to smaller and mid-sized firms who have a great process but maybe think it's difficult to be compared with some of the very large institutions that enter. So details of the awards are on the IMAP website, so please go and have a look at that and and put your entries in. 